Gospels. Now we began this series together back on September 6th, 2020. That Sunday we were meeting on the Roars Farm and we were still a little more than a month away from transitioning to meeting in the afternoons at Green Ridge Baptist Church. Doesn't that seem like a long time ago? It wouldn't be for another year before we were back meeting in this room, almost a year and a half ago, October of 2021. To say a lot has happened since we started in Matthew 1 is a significant understatement. Since Larry began our series, we have preached, to this point, 92 sermons going through the book of Matthew. And by my reckoning, we have about 11 more to go. Now this makes journey, our journey through Matthew the longest sermon series in the history of Grace Church. Uh, if this sermon series was a marathon, which it is, it has been, thanks for sticking around for it, we, well, by the time we finish, we could look back and see John, the second longest series, all the way back at mile 11. So if 26 miles, they'd be back at mile 11. So I understand if you've missed some things along the way, or forgotten some things as we've gone through Matthew. I mean, I'm the one that has been studying to preach these sermons, and I've missed and forgotten far more than I remember. And so while we're going to be giving our attention to Matthew chapter 26, towards the end of the sermon, prior to doing that, I thought it would be helpful for us to step back for a moment and consider Matthew as a whole, to take in the whole story of Matthew from, from beginning to end to remember where we've been and perhaps see more clearly how it all fits. And one of the things that's going to be uh, interesting about this and helpful about this is that the point of Matthew 26, 1 through 5 is the same as the point of Matthew as a whole. So why should we take time to do this? Why, why take time and step back and get this overview? Well, what is true of Matthew is true of every other book of the Bible. It's breathed out by God and profitable for us. Now, it's not just profitable like we get something good out of it. We will. But it's profitable for us because in it we see God and we can know him and we can enter into relationship with him. And God is not haphazard or sloppy in the words that he gives us. It's not like this is just, eh, this is all he thought of, so here you go. God is creative and purposeful and beautiful in the way that he presents himself to us. And I'm hoping that as we take this journey through Matthew, not only will you love God's word more, but that you would love and marvel at God himself more. One thing that is remarkable about how God gives us Scripture is that even though God stands behind as the author of every book, He chooses to use each human author's individuality and particularities in composing these books. I was talking to the uh, kids earlier in the catechism class, and there's, there's 66 books in the Bible, written over about 1,500 years, written by about 40 different people. And God speaks through each of them with their own individuality, with their own particularities. Now, Matthew was a Jewish tax collector and turned disciple of Jesus, and he wanted to tell people about Jesus in a very certain way. And he had his own history and experiences and style that give shape and color and detail to what he writes. And it's not just in individual verses that we see this, but it's in Matthew as a whole. And in Matthew, I want to cut right to the chase in what, in what he does. This is the big thing that I want us to notice about Matthew as a whole. The Gospel of Matthew is structured around the story of Israel. The Gospel of Matthew is structured around the story of Israel. So when we read Matthew, he presents Jesus as Israel, the new Israel, the new people of God. But, and here's the really good news for us, where Israel failed, 
Jesus never fails. So that's the big overarching idea. Jesus is the new Israel who comes to bring salvation to God's people. Now that might seem a little bit out there right now. I mean, just saying it. Uh, it might maybe seems a little irrelevant. But we're going to take this journey through Matthew. And while I'd love to make every stop along the way, we're going to take note of various points that Matthew is deliberate in how he structures his gospel and how he reflects Israel's story in the life of Jesus. And now one disclaimer, I must acknowledge right up front and take full responsibility for the fact that this, the structure of this sermon will, is a little unique. It's not going to be an easy sermon to take notes on. You're more than welcome to write things down as we go, uh, but I really want to encourage you to listen actively with your Bible in hand as we make our way through Matthew. We're going to keep our Bibles open to Matthew. I'm also going to be referring to the Old Testament at different points because I'm saying Matthew tells the story of Israel. So we're going to look back at the story of Israel at different points, but I'm going to have those scriptures, Lord willing, projected up on the screen behind us. So let me, before we begin this journey, let me pray. Father, thank you for speaking us, speaking to us through your word. Thank you for your glory that is seen as you reveal yourself to us. Indeed, we see that there is no one like you. Lord, may we adore you more as we look to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So guess where we're starting? We're starting in Matthew 1. Matthew 1. The very first words of Matthew... Clue us into what Matthew sets out to do in presenting the story of Israel through Jesus. Matthew 1 1. You can see it right there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we have talked about how Matthew connects Jesus to David and to Abraham. Larry preached on that in our very first sermon, September 6th, 2020. But Matthew's words are meant to remind us of some other words that are all the way back. In Genesis, the Bible begins with these words in Genesis 2, verse 4. Yes. <laughs> these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So Genesis 1, you know, it's, it's God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 2, 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Genesis 5, 1 goes on then to say, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is where the Bible starts. Now in our English translations, it's not... It's clear. We don't see it right away. But the phrase that begins each of these verses is exactly the phrase that Matthew uses to begin his book. So as he presents the genealogy of Jesus, he recalls where the Bible starts, where the Bible begins, where the story of Israel begins. And the first person that Matthew includes in this genealogy is Abraham. Abraham, who was the father of Israel. From there, Matthew traces Abraham's line down through David, who was the high point of Israel's history, through the exile to Babylon. And the last person that Matthew comes to in this genealogy is a guy named Joseph. Now, every Jew would associate one person with that name, and it was Joseph, the son of Jacob, the great-grandson of Abraham, the Joseph who was sold as a slave and taken to Egypt because of his dreams, Joseph the dreamer. And in Matthew 1, as he tells the story of Jesus through the lens of the history of Israel, what does Matthew highlight about this other Joseph? That this Joseph, he's a dreamer. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and tells him just what is going to take place. 
So that's how Matthew wants to tell the story of Jesus' birth, through the dream that Joseph had. Now I said that Matthew is following the story of Israel, so what happens next? So Joseph's dreams come true. Both Joseph's dreams come true. The Joseph of the Old Testament, his brothers come and they all bow down to him, right? And more than that, there was this great famine across all the world and all the nations were coming and bowing down to him to get food. This is represented by Matthew. This is where Matthew goes next. And in Matthew chapter 2, if we turn the page, we see the visit of the wise men. And these wise men come from the east. They represent all the nations coming to give honor to the king. Now what happens next? Think back, story of Israel. What happens next? This is the end of Genesis, the story of Joseph. After Genesis is Exodus. And Exodus opens with the people in Egypt. And there's a guy there who feels threatened by their presence, right? His name was Pharaoh. And because he feels threatened by their presence, what does he do? He has all the baby boys killed. That's what Pharaoh does in Exodus 1. What happens in Matthew's account as he's telling the story of Jesus? So the wise men visit, all the nations come. There's the flight to Egypt. Jesus goes to Egypt. The very next thing, Herod, the king, he feels threatened by this baby boy. And so what does he do? He has all the baby boys killed. So Matthew's here, he's telling the story of Israel through the story of Jesus. There was only one boy in both stories who is rescued and brought to safety within Egypt. Jesus in Matthew 2, Moses in Exodus 2. And if you're not convinced yet that this is what Matthew's doing, the similarities continue. That's not all that I have to say. In Exodus, Moses returns the people of Israel to lead them out of slavery, to deliver them. And in this act of deliverance, the first thing that Moses, along with his brother Aaron, does is pronounce judgment upon God's enemies. And they do that through the plagues as they come. And so in Matthew, Jesus returns to Israel, and this time John the Baptist announces judgment upon God's enemies. That's where Matthew goes next. And after this announcement of judgment, the plagues in Exodus and the preaching of John, what happens next? The people of Israel are delivered out of Egypt. And they're delivered out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Now in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul describes what happens to the people of Israel in this moment. And he says this. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. I didn't have this one projected. He says, Our fathers, the people of Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That is the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul talks about what the people of Israel went through as a baptism, as they go through the Red Sea, as they're delivered out of Egypt. And so at the end of Matthew 3, what happens to Jesus? He's baptized in water. And like Israel, who spent 40 years in the wilderness after this baptism, facing great temptation, what does Jesus do? He spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. But where Israel failed, Jesus does not fail. Now if we turn the page in Matthew, we come to the first section of teaching, the first discourse in Matthew. This is in Matthew 5-7. through It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. There are five of these sections of teaching in Matthew. And if you have a a red-letter Bible, 
which has its benefits and drawbacks. You, you can flip through Matthew really quick and see, oh, there's like big chunks of red at certain places, followed by some that are like largely black or black and red. And what's helpful about the Red Letter Bible in this case is that it gives us this structure that Matthew already has, these five blocks of teaching that make up Matthew. Now, where it's less helpful is we can begin to think subtly that like, oh, those red words are more important than the black words. But no, all scripture is breathed out by God. The red words aren't more important than the black words. Thank God they're both there. So we get to that first discourse, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And here from the top of a mountain, Jesus teaches his followers how to live in his kingdom. That's just what Moses did. When the people came through the Red Sea, the first place they go to, they end up is Mount Sinai, and they stay there. And Moses delivers the law of God to the people of God from this mountain. And after receiving the law, the people of Israel, they stay at Sinai from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers 10. So that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through to Numbers 10. And in Numbers 10, 11, and 12, we read this. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Numbers 10 records the presence of God in this cloud, leading the people of Israel down from the mountain. And so what does Matthew say at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, at the end of this teaching? Flip in your Bible, turn in your Bible over to Matthew 8, verse 1. Matthew records this. He says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So this is what happened in the story of Israel. This is what happens in Matthew. Going back to the story of Israel, as the people of God, they journey into the wilderness. They face these various tests and they rebel against God. One of the judgments that's, that's brought to the people of Israel, and it's, it's to Moses' brother and sister in particular, is, is leprosy because of their rebellion. And so Moses intercedes for the people of Israel that God might have mercy on them. God responds, and he promises that there will be judgment on this rebellious people. And we read this in Numbers 14, verses 20 through 23. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the, sh- all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. So this is the judgment that comes upon the people of Israel who have seen all that God has done, but these ten times, is what the Lord says, These ten times, they have put him to the test. They have rebelled. There's these ten tests, these ten instances of rebellion, and they have not obeyed his voice, so they shall not enter the promised land. And so do you know what Matthew does? In Matthew 8, beginning in Matthew 8, this next section of narrative, the story that he tells, Matthew records a series of, guess how many miracles? Ten miracles. Ten miracles beginning with the healing of a leper. In Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus performs these ten signs of God's power. These ten miraculous acts that act as a reversal of those ten rebellions. 
But even though this is what Jesus does, so many of the people watching fail to understand. They fail to believe and obey just like the people of Israel in Numbers. Now amidst all of this in Numbers, Moses, if you remember the story, he commissions 12 spies, one from each tribe, to go into Canaan, to go into this enemy territory, the promised land, and they're sent into the land for the purpose of preparation. Go see what's there, and we'll make plans for how to take it over. Like the spies, this is the task of Israel in Deuteronomy when they, before they enter the promised land. So on the edge of the promised land, Moses provides instruction on coming into the land and what they're to expect, how they're to live there. And this is what Jesus does in Matthew 10. And this is the second discourse in Matthew, the second block of teaching. Here Jesus commissions his 12 disciples to go into enemy territory, to cast out unclean spirits, to heal every disease and affliction. And he teaches them about what to expect, about how they're to go about their work in the kingdom of God. It's, it's, we're skipping over a lot of stuff, and it's wild to see this. The next big event in the story of Israel is their actual coming into Canaan, the promised land, in the hope of entering rest, right? This is, the, this is the promised land, the place where they will dwell forever. And while there's repeated failure to believe and obey God, the people of Israel do experience some degree of rest from their enemies as David ascends to the throne and his son Solomon reigns after him. I mentioned earlier, this is the, this is the high point of Israel's history, their period of rest and prosperity. So is this something we see in Matthew? Of course. <laughs> Following the second discourse where Jesus commissions his 12 disciples to go out into the world, Jesus turns in Matthew 11 and 12 to first condemn this generation of Israel and then to promise rest to all who come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew 12, we even see Jesus compare himself to David. And Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The one greater than the temple, greater than David. And then, like David fleeing from Saul, who's conspiring to kill him, Jesus withdraws from his enemies. He withdraws from the Pharisees who are conspiring to destroy him. But the crowds, they follow him. And they themselves are asking in Matthew twelve twenty three. You can look at that. Matthew twelve twenty three. And all the people were amazed. And what did they say? Can this be the son of David? And as the conflict in Matthew, it continues to escalate with the Pharisees, Jesus describes in Matthew 12, 42, how the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, comes to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But now, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. And so just as Solomon, a man of wisdom who taught in Proverbs... So Jesus shows himself to be the man of wisdom. And so right here in Matthew 13, Matthew records the parables of Jesus, these, these wisdom sayings of Jesus. And these parables are on the kingdom of heaven, and they, these make up the third section of teaching in Matthew. Then Matthew moves into this extended narrative section from Matthew 14 to 17. And this section, it can seem a little disjointed. It's a little chaotic. Going from jumping from place to place, a lot's going on. But if we consider the story of Israel, suddenly a structure emerges. Under Solomon's reign, Israel was a great and mighty nation. But what happened after Solomon's death? 
the kingdom divided into north and south. It descended into chaos. And amidst this rebellion, God raised up a prophet and several prophets after him. The first prophet he raised up was Elijah. Elijah, he was a wild man living in the wilderness who spoke against the king of Israel. Does that ring any bells? Now, the king that Elijah spoke against, his name was Ahab, and he had a wife named Jezebel who desperately wanted Elijah killed. Now, when, we, when you are reading through Matthew, you read through the parables, and then all of a sudden, like, out of the blue comes the death of John the Baptist. Like, wh- where, why is that there? Well, it doesn't take much imagination to recognize the similarities that Matthew draws, why Matthew puts that there. John the Baptist is Elijah, the messenger of God living in the wilderness with a leather belt. They both had leather, leather belts. Herod takes the role of Ahab, and he's, he's not a very bold or confident man. He's pushed around by his wife, Jezebel. I mean, his wife, Herodias, sorry, who playing the role of Jezebel. And they eventually arrest and murder John the Baptist. The name of Elijah comes up nine times in the book of Matthew, and six of them are just in the chapters 16 and 17. But if Elijah is John, then what role does Jesus play in this? Well, in 2 Kings, there's another prophet who comes after Elijah, who receives a greater anointing than Elijah. And his name, as you may have guessed, was Elisha. Elisha's ministry was to form a new community within rebellious Israel. Sons of the prophets is what they're called. So Elijah, he, mostly he was on his own until Elisha came along. But Elisha was always surrounded by people. And he was surrounded by one guy in particular, Gehazi, who was a piece of work. And in forming this community, uh, Elisha performed various miracles, many of which had to do with food. So for instance, in 2 Kings 4, we read about this famine that's taking place in the land, and a man comes with bread as a gift to Elisha. Elisha. And so this man brings with him 20 loaves of bread. And Elisha told a servant to give the bread to the men, this community that he's forming. And this is what we read in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, verses 43 and 44. But his servant said, how can I, this is, this is Gehazi, how can I set this before a hundred men? So Elisha repeated, give to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, what do you think is going to happen in Matthew next? Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just five loaves. In chapter 15, he feeds the 4,000 with seven loaves. And do you know what happens both times? Oh, they had some left. There are many more similarities to Elisha seen in these chapters that we're not going to get into. But the point is this, Jesus comes as the one greater than Elisha forming a community of followers that are often incompetent and seem to get in the way. And so we also see in these chapters a lot of the disciples kind of questioning Jesus, talking back to Jesus, not believing Jesus. And just like Elisha, Jesus is forming this community of God's people within Israel. Now the next discourse in Matthew, which is the fourth block of teaching, occurs in Matthew 18. And here, Matthew gives instruction for living life in this new community where people will be marked by humility and faith, where they must deal with one another's sin and where they must live together with a spirit of forgiveness. Then Matthew 19.1 brings a change of scene. 
where all the action has been taking place in Galilee. From Matthew 4.25 until Matthew 19.1. Everything has happened in Galilee, a region north of Judea. Matthew 19.1 brings this change of scene where Jesus enters Judea, a region to the south. And if you're thinking about the story of Israel, what happens is, as the kingdoms divide, the northern kingdom is conquered first. So all, the, all of the activity moves south. And when Jesus eventually arrives in Jerusalem, what's the whole city asking? They're asking, who is this? And the answer is seen in Matthew 21, verse 11. This is the answer that they, they give to one another. They ask, who is this? Matthew 21, 11. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. From this point on, the ministry of Jesus takes a different tone. It takes a prophetic tone. And even more specifically, it takes on the tone of one prophet in particular, and that's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who was sent by God to prophesy against the temple within the temple courts. That's what Jeremiah did. When Jesus comes into the temple courts in Matthew 21, 13, he, he quotes Jeremiah, calling it a den of robbers. When Jesus curses the fig tree, it calls to mind Jeremiah 8.13 when the Lord comes to gather His people and finds that there are no grapes on the vine. There are no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. Even the parable of the tenants that Jesus tells, the tenants who beat the servants sent by the Master, points to Jeremiah, who was the only prophet who was beaten. And this section leads to this final block of teaching, the fifth discourse of Matthew, in chapters 23 through 25. Matthew 23 is comprised of these seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. And these words of judgment are pronounced upon them, much like judgment that Jeremiah pronounces upon the religious leaders in Jeremiah 7 and 26. Jeremiah, who I believe wrote Lamentations as well, was known as the weeping prophet. So after he pronounces these, Jesus pronounces these seven woes, what does Jesus do? He weeps over the city. He laments the state of Jerusalem and the rebellion. And he says that this house has become, your house has left you desolate. Echoing Jeremiah 22.5, that this house will become a desolation because of disobedience. Now in your Bible, if you're, if you're, as far as the prophets go, you have Isaiah, and then you have Jeremiah, and then you have Ezekiel. And when Matthew comes to Matthew 24, he opens with Jesus leaving the temple. And what Ezekiel was, would be most known for, what it's marked by, is this departure of God's glory from the temple. That begins in, Matthew, in Ezekiel 8. And so the rest of Matthew 24 and 25, they're actually filled with imagery, all taken from Ezekiel 8 through 11. Now before we give a few minutes of attention to Matthew 26, I want to bring this overview of Matthew to a close, just in case you don't, aren't convinced yet that Matthew is telling the story of Israel in this gospel. Over the final three chapters of Matthew, not only is Jesus shown to be the suffering prophet, he, he's the suffering city. He's, he will be left desolate and destroyed. He will be exiled. That's what we're going to see as we walk through these final chapters together. But Jesus returns from exile. 
He satisfies the law's just demands. And He conquers death. Where Israel failed as a nation, Jesus never fails. And do you know where Matthew's account will end? It actually ends the same way the Old Testament Scriptures end. You see, the Hebrew Bible was ordered differently from ours today. It begins with Genesis like ours, but it ends with Chronicles. That's the end of the Hebrew Bible. The prophets come before. And the very end of Chronicles... 2 Chronicles 36.23 contains a proclamation of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Look at this verse. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So Cyrus stands as the one over all kingdoms, the one with all authority. And he tells the exiled, of, exiled people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and build a temple to the Lord. And your God will go with you in your work. So where does Matthew end his gospel account? He ends with what we know as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18, verse 20, 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, like Cyrus, begins with this declaration of authority and then tells his disciples to go. But he doesn't tell them to go back to Jerusalem, but to all the world. And in making disciples, do you know what they're doing? They're building the Lord's house as He goes with them. So Matthew shows Jesus to be the new and better Joseph, the new and better Moses, the new and better David, the one greater than Solomon, the one greater than Elisha. But it's not just that. He also shows Him to be the one all people have been waiting for. This is the focal point, the climax of all of human history. So we've walked through Matthew considering and reflecting upon these big themes, this big idea that Matthew is telling the story of Israel through the life of Jesus. And it all points to this climactic moment. And God has worked sovereignly in every detail. And I mean, when you think about, as we've just walked through Matthew, God orchestrated every detail of history. From before the foundation of the world to bring all of these things about. And with this in mind, I want us to consider for a few minutes Matthew 26, 1 through 5. And this is the beginning of the passion narrative, this final section of Matthew to see how God's sovereignty is seen in the details. Look with me at Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, before I go further, I, I want to point out that this f is a phrase that Matthew has used before. Do you know how many times he uses this phrase? He uses it five times. And they come at the end of every one of those discourses, every one of those teaching sections. All those red letters, you're going to come to the end of it, and you're going to see that Jesus had finished what he was saying. 
But there's one difference in this one that's not seen in the other ones. Here, Matthew says that Jesus finished all these sayings. All these sayings. Jesus has been teaching and speaking throughout Matthew. He's been very active. But now his words to Israel are done. He has nothing left to say to Israel. And that's just what we're going to see in the next few chapters. Jesus still speaks to his disciples. But Jesus says, but I think one word to anyone else. And this is a final judgment upon Israel. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been speaking, but Israel has failed to listen. And this is a terrifying thing. Jesus has announced judgment in Matthew 24 and 25. But as long as he is speaking, he's exercising patience with those who listen. As long as God is speaking to us, he's exercising patience with us. But once he stops speaking, his patience, his patience has reached an end. And that's a, that's a sobering, sobering truth, a sobering reality. So may we have ears to hear. But Jesus makes clear that this is all according to God's plan. He has told his disciples before and he tells them again, the one who has come to judge will himself be judged. Look again in Matthew 26, 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He says the Passover is coming. Now the Passover, this was the day where all of Israel remembered that day when they were spared of God's judgment. It was a day when the Lord passed over Egypt and every firstborn son was killed. But for those who slaughtered a lamb, who put its blood on their door, who ate its meat, the Lord would pass over. And Jesus says, the Passover is coming, and a lamb will be slaughtered. And he even points to the disciples how this is going to happen. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered up, that is, handed over, as if the Son of Man is some object to be controlled. He will be delivered up by one group to another group who will crucify him. And the only people who could carry out crucifixion were the Romans. Jesus has made this comment to the disciples to assure them that all that is taking place is under his control. It's a part of God's plan to redeem his people and restore them to a relationship with himself. But then Matthew abruptly changed the scene. Around the same time that Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen, we're taken into the high priest's courtyard. And there, a group of men are conspiring together. Look at 26 verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They get together, they make their plans. They plan together to arrest and kill Jesus quietly. And the one thing they want to make sure of is that they do this not during the feast. But these men are not in charge. These men are not in control. The one part of their careful plan won't even last more than a few verses in Matthew 26 before they decide to abandon it. Matthew reflects Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, which begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what's taking place. 
But the psalm goes on in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What determines what happens and when happens, when it happens, has nothing to do with the plans of men. It's determined by the Word of God, the sovereign hand of our Savior. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to be tracing Jesus' journey to the cross in what's known as the Passion Narrative. And we will see how Matthew talks about Jesus largely in, in passive ways. Everything is happening to Jesus. And it can almost seem like Jesus has lost control, that he's become just this object to be pushed around and handed over, to be delivered up. But this could not be further from the truth. In every story that we will come across as we take this journey with Jesus, in every detail of every story, Jesus is the one who exercises undeniable control as he walks in obedience to the Father to do for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. So as we take this journey, may the Lord give us eyes to see His glory in the details. His good providence in what what seem like big problems. And as we see these things in His Word, may we see see the same in our lives as well. That we might know Him as He is. The One who is ruling and reigning. Who works all things together according to His Word. He is our sovereign Savior and we trust in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for speaking to us through Your Word. Not only do You speak to us through Your Word, but You speak in ways that, that blow our minds in their, in their beauty and in their creativity. And there is more than we can fathom in Your Word. Yet You still speak to us. And You still come to us. And we can have a relationship with You in Jesus Christ. Thank You for what He has done for us. Thank You that where everyone else in all of human history has failed, Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And He never failed. So we look to Him and we trust in Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen.